Welcome to AZMCAST, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCAST is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. This is a 53-year-old male coming in by EMS, unconscious, unresponsive after a motorcycle collision. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for such a case. Uh, Dr. Kate Maurizio is a clinical pharmacist in emergency medicine. Kate, thanks for coming again. Thanks for having me. Dr. Chris Edwards is an assistant professor in the College of Pharmacy and a clinical pharmacist extraordinaire as well. Hi, Chris. Hey. And last is Dr. Daniel Gerald, who is a clinical assistant professor of pharmacy and saved my butt more than once last night. So thanks again for joining us, Dan. Yeah, happy to be here, Aaron. Thanks. You bet. Uh, well, the ring down again is going to be a 53-year-old male coming in by EMS after a motorcycle collision. He is unconscious and unresponsive. Uh, the temperature is 36.4, heart rate's 140, blood pressure is 95 over 65, and a respiratory rate of 10, and he's adding 95% on a non-rebreather. So when we met last time, we talked about the case of a medical code uh, and everything that you uh, have involved in that and the pharmacy's perspective. And I kind of want to talk more about the trauma resuscitation and pharmacy's role in that, because typically when we're thinking of traumas, We are thinking of blood and stop the blood from coming out and get more blood back where it's supposed to be. Uh, But a lot of this will interact with what we're going to do from a trauma perspective. Uh, So I'm going to ask, just toss this one up to the group. Uh, Is there anything different that you are bringing to a trauma resuscitation that you would not be bringing to a medical resuscitation? Yes. Great. Excellent, Kate. (laughs) This is how Kate won last time. She was the first one to say something. (laughs) (laughs) Just one word answers. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think it's going to be the focus of a lot of what we talk about, but TXA is always on my radar for these patients. And then normal stuff that we use for other codes. So the code CART, RSI box, um, pressors, fluids, warm fluids, um, and then hypertonic saline. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't really have much else to add there. I think um, the trauma mindset is a little bit different than the medical mindset, but we have to be ready for these people to code. And I'm sure we'll get into the evidence about some of the things that we're bringing, much like the medical code stuff. A lot of the evidence for the things that we're going to be giving here in trauma is going to be slightly controversial. Um, but nevertheless, we tend to do a lot of this stuff at the bedside. So we want to be prepared as the pharmacist for that. And I think it's really... <laughs> I think it's really good what you said that, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is controversial. It's not controversial. Like we, some people think it's bad. Some people think it's good. It's controversial because we don't have great evidence on some of these things yet. Uh, and we're trying to make our best uh, decisions on these. And even more so, I really can't think of any trauma that's been like any other trauma I've ever seen. They are just all unique. And once you get spiraling down their critical illness, yes, they all start to become very similar, but trauma is a unique beast. And, uh, you know, when you have one person who accidentally, like uh, I had one time, uh, sat on a uh, garden fixture that was in the shape of an arrow, um, I will never be able to apply that again, I hope. I was there for that case, and that one definitely stuck with me. That was uh, very <laughs> impressive and went very deep. Um, Points that. for the pun of that sticking with you. Very nice. <laughs> yes. Puns will always get you something good here. Um, so as we're getting some of this stuff together, you're also, EMS starts to come in. Uh, we talked about with a medical resuscitation, what you're listening to. What are you listening for from a trauma perspective uh, that might make you get some things ready versus not? So for me, the big thing is GCS, right? So a lot of the decisions that we're going to make are going to depend on that patient's current mental status. And that's going to determine most likely whether or not we're going to be intubating the patient. And it may indicate the need for hyperosmolar therapy. So that's kind of one of the big things that I'm keeping an ear out for early in the uh, resuscitation. I agree. I think GCS is going to like impact what we're going to do immediately, especially from a med perspective, whether we're going to RSI the patient or not. Um, I'm also trying to pay attention to their vitals, um, you know, not just their blood pressure, but their heart rate. Um, you know, do they have a, a positive shock index or not? And that might lead us more towards like the blood treatment or utilizing TXA. I'm um, just trying to get a sense of how sick the patient might be. And then I'm also listening for weird things in the story that may not be trauma related. Um, so maybe they got in a car accident, but they were swerving before they wrecked, right? Just trying to make sure like, is there something else um, going on with this patient that the trauma perspective might miss that might actually be really important to make sure we, we pay attention to. Yeah. I think uh, uh, the points that you make there are great of kind of looking for shock index and recognizing if this is somebody that's going to need some more um, uh, is going to need blood is going to need uh, intubation. I think all these things that we kind of mentioned, and if you heard the score going down accidentally, that's because I hit the wrong button. So that's all. <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, Oh my gosh, did I miss something about shock index? No, no, no. <laughs> shock index is very, very important. And we can mention that a couple times. <laughs> we can mention that a couple times here because it is a critical thing. And for those of you that aren't aware of shock index, there's going to be a yeah. citation here. Um, so check your phone and take a look at it, but really shock index is going to be your heart rate over your systolic blood pressure. And once you've got a heart rate, that's greater than your systolic blood pressure, you're in a bad state. Um, and this expand, this can be expanded all the way down, uh, to children. Although children are supposed to have higher, higher, higher heart rates. 
and lower blood pressures. But if you've got a shock index that's greater than 1.2 or 1.4 in children, it also pretends a very bad outcome. Um, so shock index is a great thing to look at. And so I gave Dan some extra points because I think I scared him. So <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you, you mentioned that because I've noticed that some EMS do report that and we get that in the page. And I have found that to be extraordinarily helpful um, as another indicator for how well that patient is coming in the door. Okay. So um, as the patient comes in, he's in C-spine immobilization on a spine board. He is a 53-year-old male who's brought in by EMS after an unhelmeted MBC, uh, MCC after at highway speeds versus a guardrail. Um, he was found 15 feet from the vehicle, uh, large head laceration, unstable pelvis, left forearm deformity, right ankle deformity, and road rash as far as the eye can see. His vitals, when we get him here, uh, temperature was 37.2, heart rate is 135, blood pressure is 85 over 60, respiratory rate of 10, satting 95% on his non-rebreather. He's got, he's very unresponsive. Uh, he's got a five centimeter parietal scalp black, depressed left skull fracture, um, and the left greater than right pupil, which are both sluggish. He's very tacky. He's got diminished pulses, equal breast sounds bilaterally, soft non-distended abdomen, but an unstable pelvis with a left forearm deformity and a right ankle deformity without a pulse. Um, I wrote this case and then I actually had this case the other day. So um, it's always, I got to start writing simpler cases so that I have easier shifts, but this is pretty much a patient that we had come in GCS of three just looks sick. And so trauma, uh, the nurses, the medics, uh, the docs, everybody just descends on this patient starts their primary survey of airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure moves on to the secondary survey IV access monitors, throwing everything in there. As you, uh, as we start to see this, uh, the questions that are going to come up are how stable his airway is and will he need to be intubated? Uh, but even more so, we've got a guy with the high shock index, as Daniel mentioned, um, and he's got a low GCS, as Chris mentioned as well. Um, so he's probably got a head bleed. He's probably got some degree of maybe hemorrhagic shock that we just haven't found yet. Um, but as we're going this, what is the first thing, the first drug that you usually hear called out for as the patient's rolling down the hallway? A lot of times it'll be hypertonic saline. Yeah. So and we can, we can start with the hyperosmolar therapy, um, because that's what I usually hear as well is let's get this guy some hypertonic. It's like, we're not to breathing yet. We're still only at airway. We don't even know if we have access and there is a huge push, at least in our trauma bay. Let's get this hypertonic saline in right now, because yeah. if we do the, the, and, and not to be facetious, but with the, uh, force that it is always shouted out, you'd think that the hypertonic is make this guy going to sit up and walk out. Yes. <laughs> it's a, um, I, I do believe in the hyperosmolar therapy to a point, but, um, I think sometimes the emphasis on it is a bit much. So yeah, we, we should talk about that. I think to start with. <laughs> so let's start talking about what is the utility of hypertonic saline in a patient, uh, in this kind of patient that has a GCS of three that has uh, a high shock index. Um, I always, my minimalist nature is going to kick in reduced ICP. So you're trying to pull water out of the brain. 
because this guy's probably got a uh, not just a specific head injury. He may have um, a subdural or an epidural, but he's got certainly an unhelmeted MVC is going to have his brain sloshed around in his brain box quite a bit. So the Monroe Kelly doctrine says you only have enough room for a certain amount of stuff and you can decide whether that's going to be blood, brain or CSF. And so if we can decrease uh, some of the brain volume with the hypertonic or hyperosmolar therapy, um, then maybe that will be helpful in these patients. Yeah, I think the thing we always have to keep in mind is we want to optimize cerebral compliance in these patients. And um, we can probably touch on it later, but open skull fractures is kind of uh, one of those areas that I think we tend to focus on less so. Um, if these patients come in with an open skull fracture, sometimes that changes how important I think hyperosmolar therapy might be in the end too. So, I think I think the thing to focus here is obviously it's like the first thing that's usually yelled out or called for, um, but in like the grand scheme of things, this is really intended to help mitigate secondary brain injury. It's not really going to fix your, your current brain injury. Um, and there's going to be other things that we're going to focus on, but yeah, this is, this is definitely something that comes up and we, as the pharmacist kind of internally prioritize. So if this patient's going to need an airway right away, yeah, we'll work on the hypertonic, but it may not be the very first thing that we do. Um, and as Kate mentioned, yeah, whether they have a open skull fracture or not, like the utility of, um, your hyperosmolar therapy might change. And yeah. to kind of piggyback off of that, um, they really only work well when you have an intact blood-brain barrier. And so mm -hmm. you can run into some negative side effects and adverse complications from these agents if you're using it in potentially patients with compromised um, blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. Just to kind of piggyback off of uh, what Dan was saying in terms of prioritization, it really all comes back to ATLS, right? So we should be running through A, B, C, D, E. And I would put hyperosmolar therapy in the D section, right? This is going to potentially help with disabilities from neurologic injury, but you want to make sure that your patient has a patent airway. You want to make sure that they're breathing and that they have good circulation before you even start thinking about giving them hypertonic saline. It's not, it shouldn't be the first thing that gets called out, um, even though it is yeah. you know, potentially helpful uh, in this setting. Hyperosmolar therapy is something that we use to mitigate ICP as for something else. So it's something to buy that patient time until some other intervention that they need. So whether that's decompressive craniotomy or whatever, um, they aren't, it isn't something that's really going to help on the front end. Yeah. That's such a good point because, you know, you're causing fluid shifts and that's only going to be a temporizing measure. At some point mm -hmm. that fluid is going to shift back into the apartment you shifted it from. So yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. This is not definitive therapy. This is a temporizing measure. Now, what about hypertonic saline itself as a resuscitative fluid if you've got someone who has hemorrhagic shock and a tbi is hypertonic saline going to be you know a good fluid to give somebody in order to actually get their volume back up and maybe resuscitate them a bit i know that um it's been studied in, in the military population as a resuscitative fluid just to help expand um their volume but we see so much of the hyperchloremic acidosis that it's not necessarily a benign medication that would really optimize volume resuscitation. 
So there were several studies that looked at using hypertonic saline as a resuscitative fluid that came out of this group called the Rock Consortium. Uh, Kurt Denninghoff was actually a part of uh, some of those original trials, which I found out while doing a presentation about these studies uh, where he was in the audience, which was super fun. Um, but anyhow, so, um, but yeah, so, so they didn't find much of a difference between hypertonic saline and isotonic saline. And as Kate mentioned, that gives you some application in the military setting because it's a much smaller volume that can potentially give you more volume expansion, right? So you're going to pull fluid from other compartments into your intravascular space, get that intravascular repletion, but you're going to have the same problems with hypertonic saline that you see with other crystalloids. So you're diluting out your oxygen carrying capacity. You're diluting out your clotting factors. Um, you're potentially causing that hyperchloremic uh, acidosis. And so in terms of volume resuscitation in the setting of trauma, um, fluids, crystalloid fluids probably aren't the best option that we have available. So I agree. As we said initially, blood, 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 and more blood. Uh, when you think, when you've got trauma, think yeah. blood. Um, I just uh, had the pleasure of recertifying for ATLS recently so that I could be an instructor. And uh, that was one of the great things that I heard uh, that I was like, that's so simple. I love how they say it of like, if somebody comes in uh, and they're a trauma, um, trauma patients uh, or uh, septic patients tend not to drive. Uh, and so if they come in, they're hypotensive, they probably didn't get septic while they were on the way to work. They probably are bleeding out. And I think that <laughs> thinking of thinking in terms of prioritization, I think that's a great way to think of trauma patients. However, I've also been an ER doctor long enough to say, yeah, septic patients drive all the time. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's a really good point because when we're talking about any sort of shock state, you have to, you know, as lame as it sounds, treat the underlying condition. And so <laughs> trauma patients, whether it's a TBI, isolated TBI or, you know, massive trauma, your focus and prioritization is very different than someone who's septic. Yeah. No, uh, I think, I'll go for it. I was just going to say, I think in a place like our shop, like, talking about the hypertonic or hyperosmolar therapy is reasonable because we have those resources. But since it is such like a secondary thing, if we're not optimizing oxygenation, if we're not optimizing their blood pressure with blood, then like pulling out something like this, just, you know, is probably not the right, the right time or the right strategy. Um, so I think you do see it a lot more at a place like ours, just because we have all those resources that can do all those other things while hypertonic is getting prepared and, and administered. And that's one of the things that ATLS always pushes is that if you are uh, in a low resource center, then no, hypertonic is not going to be the life-saving thing. It's something that you will give later. So uh, really thinking of things in terms of seconds, minutes, hours of what is going to make a difference in seconds, what's going to make a difference in minutes, what's going to make a difference in hours. So Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good point um, with these patients in particular. I always find myself prioritizing, okay, what battles do I actually want to fight right now, depending on the patient, because everything moves very quickly. And Usually it involves people yelling too. It doesn't have to though. Right. <laughs> I'll say that again. Yelling and uh, raising your, and being loud are two different things. Uh, I think when you're running these resuscitations, you can be loud and direct without yelling. So, um, so one last thing about hypertonic is uh, hypertonic uh, used to be alternated and still is in some of the uh, ICU settings with mannitol. And we used to give mannitol as well. What happened that mannitol fell out of favor? I, I think, so recently there 
there was a recent study that came out that actually showed hypertonic was better. Um, but I think a lot of the information that I've gathered from all the studies and then practice guidelines is a lot of it comes down to provider preference. And so Manitol does require some administration um, techniques. You have to use a filter with it, whether it's the 20 or 25%, it can crystallize. So <clears throat> I think overall hypertonic is a lot easier to administer, um, but in general, it can do the same thing. And in some ways, mannitol works better as a bolus therapy and it's been shown to, depending on what study you look at, can decrease ICP just as well as hypertonic. That's my understanding as well, right? So osmols are osmols. So as long as you're getting some osmols into the serum, you're gonna pull some fluid out of the CNS and essentially achieve the same outcome. Um, Kate mentioned some of the um, administration issues that come up with mannitol, which, which makes hypertonic a little bit more favorable. Um, one of the other sort of things that I, I don't think everybody realizes with mannitol is um, you can see hypernatremia with mannitol as well. Um, so mannitol works as an osmotic diuretic. You're going to pee off a bunch of your free fluid, and that is going to cause sort of a, a hypovolemic hypernatremia kind of picture. Um, so you're not really gaining anything by avoiding hypertonic saline if you're trying to not increase their serum sodium level further. So there's really not a ton of advantages to using mannitol. Um, most of the evidence suggests either um, very similar outcomes uh, when comparing mannitol and hypertonic saline. And there's a few studies that show hypertonic might be a little bit better. So, you know, in addition to not really getting anything out of uh you know, avoiding hypernatremia or anything like that. The other potential downside with mannitol is that you are causing that diuresis. So if you have a patient who's already hypovolemic, you have them now peeing off some of their um, intravascular volume, probably less than ideal in the setting of uh, like polytrauma picture like this one. I would, I would just take it a step further, even from what Chris is saying is we know hypotension is bad in TBI. And so if we're giving a med that might actually cause hypotension, then I think it should probably be avoided. Yeah. So always, always making sure to minimize your secondary injury from hypoxemia or hypotension with TBI. So moving down from the brain, we've still got a guy with a high shock index. Uh, his heart rate's 135 and his blood pressure is 85. And as we're getting his resuscitation, we're starting to think, as we've said already, blood. He's probably uh, not dehydrated. Uh, he's probably losing blood. And so we want to get blood into him. Um, so thinking about, uh, TXA, that's always something that we will, uh, it, it's the, unfortunately transexamic acid is just too far in the alphabet for us to really get up there higher. I was trying to see if maybe we could put it under G for give transexamic acid, but, uh, I, I don't know of a better way to get that higher on the algorithm, uh, but it's a great drug and it's cheap and it works and it's, you know, it's kind of like ketamine in a way of like, how can this drug be so good? And yet we didn't know it for all this time. So I have a lot of good things to say about TXA, but I would prefer you as the pharmacist to give us a little bit of guidance on when that might be a great, good idea and when it might cause some problems. Just real quick about the uh, moving it higher in the algorithm. If only Crash 2 had used aminocaproic acid, we could have put mm -hmm. it right at the top, but <laughs> right up with airway. But it's more expansive. <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe we could give it uh, at F and it could be for the love of God, give, t- <laughs> give TXA. <laughs> so Crash 2 was a, a very large trial that came out. Um, was it 2011, Dan? Is that about 2010. right? 2010. 2010. Oh my gosh. All right. So uh, Crash 2 was a, a, oh, dang, for not memorizing the date. Brutal. Um, so no, just because Dan corrected you. Oh, good, good, good. All right. Fair. Um, so Crash 2 was a, a large trial that came out in 2010. And basically it enrolled patients from, uh, I want to say 40 different countries, 200 and some odd centers. Um, basically they enrolled any trauma patient who had a systolic blood pressure less than 90, a heart rate over 110, or the physician thought that this patient may be at risk of having a significant hemorrhage. Um, they were randomized to receive either one gram of tranexamic acid uh, over 10 minutes, followed by one gram administered over eight hours, or placebo. Um, the really interesting thing about CRASH-2 and the reason why we're still talking about it more than 10 years later um, is that even with this patient population that was unlikely to die, um, very small percentage of these patients actually you know, had really serious injuries. Um, they still were able to show uh, a statistically significant difference in mortality um, in the patients who received tranexamic acid. And so, you know, this really propelled it to the forefront of um, medications that could be used to achieve hemostasis in the setting of trauma, um, got it added to the World Health Organization's essential toolkit, um, and, and is really, you know, again, kind of propelled it into prominence as, as the preferred agent for promoting hemostasis in the setting of, of trauma. And just, I guess, just to piggyback on uh, what Chris is saying, like, I, I remember, you know, looking at this trial the first time and I really like jumped on the bandwagon, like you've got a cheap drug that seems to be pretty safe that might have a mortality benefit. We just don't see that very often. And so I think, I think I was definitely pushing for it too. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the newer studies that have come out, but I think the TXA pendulum is one that kind of keeps swinging a little bit or oscillating. Like people really, really love it and they want to give it to a lot of people. And then you'll see some studies that say, well, maybe we should be a little bit more strict with it. Um, and I think you're just going to get varying opinions on this. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how we all, we all think about the use of TXA and when we might pull the trigger. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, uh, people that are concerned, what are the concerns with this? And what are some of the patients that maybe we might harm with this? Cause that's always the, con- that's always the risk benefit of the number needed to treat versus the number needed to harm with the medication. So the, based on how TXA works, it's an antifibrinolytic. So basically to sum it up, it makes your clots more stable and makes you harder to break them down. So it doesn't actually make clots, but the ones that you do make, they make them a little bit more stabilized and hopefully stick around longer. So theoretically an increased risk of thrombosis. Um, but when you actually look at the CRASH-2 trial, you actually don't see that signal. And I think you in fact actually see a reduction in thrombosis in the treatment group, um, which is kind of interesting and counterintuitive. Um, so from a safety perspective, the CRASH-2 trial like kind of answered like, hey, this isn't a big deal. Um, and there's some other trials that kind of signal that too. Um, and there was another potential concern, which was followed up on on another uh, trial, which was uh, promoting uh, seizures. So increasing the risk of 
seizures. And so they looked at that in a follow-up CRASH-3 trial. There just wasn't a lot of, you know, head-injured patients in the original CRASH-2 trial. Um, so those are some patients that people were potentially concerned about. Do they have a known history of, you know, recent PEDBT? Do they have a seizure history? Um, and we just didn't kind of have those answers. Um, I think overall, though, um, at least for me personally, I really wasn't, you know, not using TXA in those patients, but it was a question that people had. Just to clarify, after CRASH-3, um, you mentioned, you know, concerns about those patients who may be at risk for seizure. Um, my read on CRASH-3 was that there was no signal for increased seizure risk in patients with TBI who received TXA as well, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that kind of answered that question. But uh, we can talk about it in a little bit, but what's what was the efficacy in the CRASH-3 trial? Depends on the severity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, efficacy versus safety, right? So Dan kind of mentioned the safety outcomes. So between crash two and crash three, we've got, you know, over 20,000 patients that were allocated to receive tranexamic acid in the setting of a randomized controlled trial without any major increased risk of, of thromboembolism, right? Not even a signal suggesting that we have an increased risk of thromboembolism. So from a safety standpoint, super safe. So then the question becomes efficacy. And I think that it really depends on the patient in front of you. So CRASH-2 was looking at sort of a general trauma patient um, population. And I think that the patient we're discussing uh, with this case kind of falls more into that CRASH-2 cohort. CRASH-3 was specifically looking at TBI. Um, and so I think that that's a little bit different than the patient in front of us. So in terms of, um, let's talk a little bit about CRASH-3 because I think that's interesting. And then I'll stop talking and give these guys a chance because they look bored. So <laughs> CRASH-3, um, CRASH-3, categorize patients as having um, sort of mild to moderate versus severe TBI. And in the patients who received uh, tranexamic acid and had a mild to moderate uh, TBI, they showed vastly improved outcomes, particularly if the TXA was given pretty early in their treatment course. For patients with severe TBI, it didn't do anything, probably because they had a severe TBI, right? If you have a bullet through your brain, it doesn't really matter what kind of drugs you give that person. They're probably not going to do well. Um, but it is sort of counterintuitive to how we typically will treat TXA, where we'll usually reach for it in those more severe cases, thinking that, oh man, this is this is legit. We should probably get more aggressive with our therapies. In the setting of TBI, the evidence actually shows that for more mild to moderate TBI, they actually do a little bit better um, if you can get TXA on board uh, early. But that's different than our patient, so I'll leave it to these guys to talk about that. <laughs> I don't have a lot to add to that, which it was really interesting seeing crash because of that. It's, it's, um, it's opposite to how we normally view these patients and when I would reach for it. But that being said, I think the other big thing to take away from all these trials is time since injury. So you always want to make sure it's within three hours because that's where most of the benefit was found. And so how long it's been since they got in their car wreck or whatever suffered their head injury. That's always something that I want to be mindful of too in these patients. And also the seizure risk is interesting. So before crash two came out, one of the things I looked at for their criteria was for adverse events with seizures. And a lot of the data for seizures came from CT surgery patients where they were using very, very high doses of TXA. So in some ways I was sort of shocked that um, it was being studied, but the doses that we use in any of these studies is significantly lower <clears throat> than any of the doses that have been found to induce seizures in patients. So I think it's around like 15 mg per kg per hour mm. of some of the doses that they were using where you start to see that increased risk of seizures. 
Um, I guess one more thing to add with these two trials, considering our patient is um, one of the limitations of the CRASH-2 trial was, as Chris mentioned, it's a very large across the world international trial, but a lot of the places where these patients were enrolled are not going to be the level one trauma centers, the military bases. They don't have rapid access to, you know, trauma surgeons. They can't get to the OR. Some of these places may not even have blood. And so when you see a benefit in a study like that, we have to ask ourselves, well, are we in the same setting? What is what is the validity of that trial to us? Mm -hmm. And so I think after a few years that those are some of the questions we were asking with CRASH too is, does this really apply to our patients? If I can take this patient to the OR and do damage control surgery, will we we see the same benefit with TXA. And I think that's why you see a very big discrepancy between, um, you know, some of our providers, who's going to give TXA when, and I just think it's hard to, it's hard to know that answer just based on the crash two results. One of the big advantages that we have at a level one trauma center, academic medical center, is that we can fairly rapidly assess this patient's coagulation status. And as Dan mentioned, um, TXA is going to work by inhibiting fibrinolysis. And you can see on a tag if you have an issue with hyperfibrinolysis, right? So if that pathway is out of control, um, that will often be the, the trigger that some surgeons will use to uh, give or not give TXAs. So if you have access to that capability, you should probably use it and make decisions based on, you know, the, the evidence and the clinical picture in front of you. Um, for crash two, they, a lot of these centers didn't have that. We didn't have uh, that capability at that time. And so we just kind of guessed like, yeah, the patient's probably hyperfibrinolytics. Or, mm -hmm. So we'll go ahead and just give it and hope for the best. Yeah, I think it's it's overwhelmingly a, a relatively safe medication that is relatively cheap, uh, that has a benefit. I think that's fantastic. And so it's really we're probably going to get into the nuances of who's going to benefit the most and who might actually have harm over the next few years. Just like anytime we have a really great breakthrough uh, in some kind of new drug or some kind of new management, something like early goal-directed therapy, where, wow, we see an incredible impact. And then everybody starts pouring through to see, well, but exactly who? And I think that's, that's usually how these will go. So it'll be interesting to see how this works. I'm still a big believer in it. And I ask uh, in conjunction with the team, does this seem like a great idea? Kate and I just gave TXA to a three-year-old uh, about a month ago that had a bad uh, bleed uh, from trauma and uh, that kid did great. Um, and so we, you know, it'll go all the way down. Um, you just have to make sure that you have protocols that actually work uh, and that everyone is in agreement on what you're giving because there are still uh, theoretical risks and some concerns that are out there that you have to make sure everyone in your team, especially if you're an emergency doctor, making sure that the subsequent providers, the admitting service knows what you're doing, because we often forget that the things that we do now have significant effects downstream. Um, so I'll ask one more very pointed question about this patient before we kind of move on with his management, uh, but he's hypotensive and he's tachycardic, got a high index. Uh, I got a high shock index. Um, any role for pressors in trauma patients? Should we be starting this guy in some epi? Because if we don't, maybe he's going to code or something. This is probably one of the biggest areas of controversy, I think, in um, trauma patients for sure. And I think it, it depends. Um, the European guidelines say they're okay if you've adequately resuscitated and you're throwing everything that that patient needs from a volume standpoint in blood. 
But if you look at ATLS, they're not in there. And a lot of people don't recommend using them. Um, I think you need to be really judicious. I think it, they can help. It's probably more of a role for our push dose pressers. Yeah, I, I agree with Kate. There, there probably you know, is a time and a place for pressers. We still probably don't know exactly who that is. I think the thing to think about with trauma patients is it's one of the few disease processes that we have that doesn't discriminate. Like any patient can have a trauma, so maybe totally healthy. They may have a lot of comorbid conditions. And in some of these patients, they're not going to come in with isolated hemorrhagic shock, right? They might have another form of shock as well. Um, and so I think you can find the right scenario to go ahead and give pressors. And I just think it's going to be very individualized to the patient or the scenario that you're dealing with. I'm going to dumb it down a little bit at risk of losing points. I almost never recommend giving pressors to a trauma patient, right? Uh, 90, 95% of the time, the problem is going to be hemorrhagic shock. And you want to, as, as Kate mentioned, adequately resuscitate. And a lot of times that means a lot of blood. If these people are losing a lot of blood, they're going to need to get a lot of blood to have adequate volume resuscitation. Um, in the setting of trauma, you do have to be concerned about spinal cord injury, potentially leading to neurogenic shock. And if that seems to be the picture that you're, you're seeing, then I think there's a, a definite role for pressors. Uh, but aside from that, I, I think it's going to be blood, 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 blood. And I can count on one hand, the number of times I've reached repressors in the setting of trauma, in 12 years of practice. It's, it's not something that I, I would recommend very often. Yeah, we all uh, have seen a lot of trauma patients and very little that require pressors. Uh, one of the things, as uh, Daniel mentioned earlier, was damage control resuscitation of your and uh, you know the whole point of TXA to maintain your clot. If you get your pressure too high, there you have a theoretical risk of blowing the clot, and then you start the bleeding all over again. So uh, you know increasing the pressure is good, but if you haven't fixed the hole in the bucket yet, then we're still not at that point. Yeah. And I, th I think that to kind of piggyback off that acidosis worsens the efficacy of your pressors. And mm. so um, all but vasotheoretically. So really you could be giving something that would potentially harm a patient and also not be doing anything at all. So I'm so, curious about that trial you mentioned with the uh, vasopressin. I'm not familiar with that one. Be um, avert. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't either until Dan mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like I'm putting points to Dan. I did read up a little bit. They, it looked at um, vasopressin in a very small patient population. So I was happy to see that, but uh, Dan, if you want to talk about it, you should totally talk about it. Yeah, you can you can fill in any holes because I know you looked at it recently, but uh, I think it was only about 100 patients and uh, they randomized them to a group that received vasopressin, um, but they had a strict criteria where they all had to receive at least uh, six units of blood. So they were trying to resuscitate them first and then go ahead and give them uh, the, the vasopressin. So that's kind of like the premise of the trial, but being such a small trial, probably hard to take a, a lot from it, but I don't know if you remember the specific results, Kate. They did find a benefit with vasopressin in patients that they were resuscitating. And so obviously the recommendation was it's appropriate to use as long as you're giving your patient what they need, which is volume. Um, but again, small trial, 100 patients, and most studies that you look at before this trial came out have not shown that and were much larger. So uh, the one thing I will say about it, and this is theoretical and more my opinion, um, 
of all the pressors to use, I was glad that they used vasopressin. I think that in any shock state, the idea of being vasodepleted applies no matter what. And so interestingly, they did a loading dose of vaso and then started a continuous infusion and titrated it up to 0.04 or 0.4 units per minute. I would have to double check the actual infusion rate. Um, but I did think that was really interesting. And it seemed like they, they actually knew what they were doing. Because in comparison to a lot of other pressors, the onset of vaso is much longer. So its onset is about 15 minutes compared to epi, norepi, all of our catecholamines or traditional catecholamines, they work within a minute. You, that's why we do push dose pressors because it's instant blood pressure control in patients. Very interesting. It'll be interesting to see if they broaden that out, if that actually makes a big difference. But I think uh, kind of getting back to what everybody has said, um, you have to adequately resuscitate before you start pressors. And that's true of any kind of shock with the exception of maybe neurogenic shock um, of uh, where you've just got loss of your tone and you need to get all those catecholamines back, but um, I'll go for it. Oh, I was just going to say the, there wasn't, they didn't find a mortality benefit. I want, they found a reduction in the number of blood products that those patients received, which could be clinically meaningful given blood products while they're really important, don't come without risks either. And that certainly would help in a setting where blood, you know, blood is hard to come by, um, whether yeah. that's in your local hospital or just even people not donating enough blood. So very interesting. Well, with a score of Dr. Gerald jumping ahead at 22 by uh, coming up with an article that nobody else had been able to, uh, had heard of. That's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, Dr. Edwards at 21 and Dr. Maurizio at 20. We will move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So as we continue with this patient, we're prepping the patient for intubation because of his low GCS. He has a pelvic binder placed and a subclavian cortis. Uh, massive transfusion is now initiated. So I'm curious to hear from you all of the pharmacy component of massive transfusion protocol. So as the nurses just keep bringing us coolers of blood, it just keeps coming in. What is the pharmacy component that you're looking at, at how much blood they're getting or other factors that you can help make that blood do the, uh, the most good for this patient? So, so I'm definitely paying attention to how much blood is being given and what components of blood are being given. Um, I think, I think we're probably aware of the proper trial that came out many, many years ago that we were a study center for, um, which just kind of looked at different ratios of blood products in the setting of um, massive transfusion. And so end result there was trying to target a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one component of infusion of RBCs, um, your FFP, and then your platelets. Um, not to say you should do them in that order and keep alternating, but you know once you get through um, you know, a large volume, 10, 12 units, you should hopefully have that type of ratio. So I'm just paying attention to making sure we're doing the other blood products too. Um, but, you know, as we're starting to get more and more blood, if I haven't already asked about TXA, I'm asking it then because I know some trauma surgeons, their threshold is, you know, we've given blood or some don't do it until we have mass transfusion. So I'm thinking about that. And then also if we're giving a lot of blood, I'm thinking about what other complications come from that with the citrate that's in it. So tell me about the citrate. 
because <laughs> that's something that we don't ever give. Nobody's ever asked me to give citrate in the uh, emergency department as we're doing one of these. And so uh, it's something that we never really think about as we're giving blood to patients, especially when we're giving lots of blood is what's in the blood. This is not just, uh, you know, World War II, hook one IV into a healthy soldier and hook the other IV in uh, other end of the IV into a soldier that needs blood. So what is in this blood that's complicating things for us? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, right. So when I think one of the things before I even, when I was a baby pharmacist, uh, you don't just collect blood. Um, if you did coagulate. And so we add citrate, which is an anticoagulant for stored blood. And so that's great until you start infusing it in massive quantities in patients because citrate binds up your calcium. And so what we know about calcium is it's essential in the coagulation cascade. And so we have to replace their calcium if we're doing large amounts of resuscitation. And so for me, anywhere from two to four units, I start saying, do you want calcium? Should we do a gram of calcium, calcium chloride? Usually, because in these situations, we usually have our um, code code tray available. That's a good point. And we also usually have a central line. So giving calcium chloride is, is pretty reasonable, uh, it, particularly through the central line. Um, the other downside of citrate binding all your endogenous calcium is that you know, calcium is responsible for maintaining vascular tone as well, right? So we're dumping blood products and blood products and blood products into these people, um, trying to get their blood pressure to come up. And then if they're hypocalcemic, um, losing vascular tone, you could potentially see some hypotension from that as well. Um, so yeah, giving that calcium after two to four units of uh, blood products is definitely a really, really good idea. Um, I think I think that's a big debate right now. Um, I think historically, I've usually used a certain ratio of how much calcium I want to use per blood product that's used. Um, I think what you'll see um, coming up is I think the current landscape of looking at you know, how hypocalcemic are these patients in trauma? What does that actually cause in them? I think we're going to see a big push in um, looking at that evidence in that literature. Um, there's even a recent paper that came out that talks about changing the trauma triad of death or the trauma triangle of death to the trauma diamond of death and including hypocalcemia there. Um, and so the reasons are kind of how Chris mentioned, like it's going to worsen vascular tone if you're hypocalcemic, um, but then also hypothermia is going to contribute to your ability to actually process the citrate and metabolize it. So if you're hypothermic, then it's going to make it harder for you to get rid of your citrate. And then also hypocalcemia is associated with acidosis. So all of these things, I think, also contribute to that original trauma triad of death. And so I have been hearing things about people just giving a lot more calcium than I usually do um, really, really early in these resuscitations, just thinking that the benefit far outweighs the risk. And the, the beauty of, uh, again, practicing at a level one trauma center, academic medical center, is you can get an ionized calcium really quick, right? So a lot of times we'll empirically give a gram of calcium chloride after about two to four units. And after that, you should be trending your iCals just to see where you're at and giving more if necessary. And, and as Dan mentioned, that might change. We might change how we administer it in the future. Uh, but in, in general, that's just good practice. So as we're getting this patient resuscitated, we've got massive transfusion protocol uh, initiated. We also know that this patient has a GCS of three, has an obvious head, head injury, um, and you know we're concerned about this patient's airway. 
we uh, not to steal anything from Dr. Pacheco's thunder, but uh, uh, our airway stuff says that these physiologically difficult airways are at high risk uh, for a uh, periantubation cardiac arrest because you give them some kind of induction agent and they lose their sympathetic tone and they arrest on you. So trying to transfuse them ahead of time, uh, trying to pre-oxygenate them, all of those things are important, but also the selection of your induction agent is very important. I was fortunate that Dr. Pacheco was there when we intubated my real life version of this patient and handed me uh, my induction agents. And I did not question uh, the airway guru that is Dr. Pacheco. And uh, the uh, intubation went much more smoothly uh, from a hemodynamic standpoint. So if you are having to intubate this patient, what are uh, induction agents are you considering? So I can tell you pretty quickly what I'm not considering, and that's anything that's going to definitely cause empatholysis and dropper pressure, right? So some shops will use propofol, midazolam for induction. Definitely not going to be thinking about those. Arguably, I feel like to piggyback off that, ketamine can fall into that category too. Um, we tend to think about it causing a lot of hypertension, but if a patient's catecholamine depleted, it can actually lead to the opposite effect. So with shock patients, I'm a lot more hesitant to use ketamine. Yeah, especially if they've been sick for a while. Um, yeah. I, I get really nervous about catecholamine depletion because uh, in the absence of catecholamines, yeah, as, as Kate mentioned, uh, ketamine is going to act as a direct myocardial depressant. And I've had it bite me enough times that I'm scared of ketamine now. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some evidence out there as well. It's crappy evidence. It's a retrospective study, at, uh, retrospective database analysis where they showed um, when patients received ketamine compared to atomidate for induction, about 70% of the patients who got ketamine experienced hypotension, um, either peri or post intubation, whereas in the atomidate group, it was 50%. Uh, those are really high figures. Um, and it is, you know, crappy retrospective data, lots of selection bias, but it's enough to make me to kind of validate my anecdotal experience of, of being a little bit nervous about using ketamine in the sick patients. So we know what we're not going to use. Daniel, what are you going to use? Yeah, I think uh, culturally and then also in my practice, I mean, we just use Atomidate a lot more, seems to be the most hemodynamically neutral. Um, I do think, yeah, in the right patient, you can use something like ketamine, but I agree, like there are going to be some patients where maybe we don't want to use it. Um, I do want to say, though, the uh, use of ketamine in the head injured patient, um, that's something that still comes up in the trauma bay. And uh, I think even ASEP has a little blurb about that, that that's kind of been debunked. Um, that's not to say that ketamine doesn't cause an increase in ICP, but it's in very, very specific patients. The typical one are patients that have uh, CSF outflow obstruction, but just your general trauma patient that has a head injury. Um, ketamine's actually been shown to probably be a great agent for maintaining cerebral perfusion. I actually just had a trauma patient yesterday that was acting a little wacky uh, and uh, had some uh, stigmata of methamphetamine, shall we say. And uh, I asked the uh, uh, trauma docs that we were working with, I said, hey, what would you like to give this person to try to get them to hold still? And they said, ketamine, what else would we give? And it just warmed my heart so much. <laughs> uh, that. Made me feel a whole lot better. So... It's a lot of fun. Now, uh, so at the end of the workup, uh, we have the final score, Dr. Gerald with 35, a commanding lead with his uh, impressive uh, knowledge of the evidence, uh, Dr. Edwards at 29 and Dr. Maurizio at 23. So Dr. Edwards and Dr. Gerald are going to move on to the dispo. 
During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. So as we come back to the patient, uh, we, induce, we induce the patient for intubation. The patient is successfully intubated, has received massive transfusion. Uh, however, in spite of adequate resuscitation, he starts to become bradycardic and arrests. And at that point, the whole room changes directions and starts crashing this guy. And we start our uh, uh, trauma crash, uh, which is going to involve a lot more blood, uh, chest, bilateral chest tubes with possibly a thoracotomy as well. One of the brand new attendings who was a seasoned and jaded emergency resident just a couple months ago now looks at you and says, the trauma attending told me to take care of the medical part. What am I going to give this guy, Dr. Edwards? Um, that's a tricky one, right? So when a trauma patient codes, it's probably not something we're going to fix with drugs, right? We can maybe offset some of the clinical consequences of hypoperfusion. We might be able to augment some of their um, cardiac function, but, you know, realistically, if somebody codes following traumatic arrest, it's probably because they lost a lot of blood or they have a, an injury in some vital organ. So, uh, as much as I hate to say it, we're probably not going to fix them with drugs. That being said, um, sort of depending on the trajectory of this, um, one of the things that I would recommend giving early is epinephrine. Uh, it is somewhat controversial about epinephrine use in the setting of trauma, um, however, assuming that there has been resuscitative attempts, the patient's got a lot of blood, um, giving epi in this situation could potentially help to improve coronary uh, perfusion, cerebral perfusion, and help to make sure that whatever blood is circulating is getting to the most important organs in the body. So I'd probably give epi at this point, um, and then bicarb. So bicarb is somewhat controversial in any code situation, but in the setting of multi-system trauma, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, these patients are very likely acidotic because they have not been perfusing their organs because they've been bleeding out. Um, that correction of that acidosis is one of the H's that we can chase with drugs. Um, so I think giving bicarb is particularly important and I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but I'm gonna assume that this patient's chest is gonna get cracked at some point. Um, once the aorta gets cross-clamped, you've got a lot of body that's not being um, perfused at all. Um, and if you do get them back and unclamp the aorta, um, there's going to be a lot of lactic acid circulating. So um, in that situation, I would be looking for two, three amps of bicarb um, before unclamping the aorta. Typically, that won't happen in the emergency department, but I've seen it a couple of times. Um, so, but assuming that the chest is still closed, it would be epi, bicarb calcium, um, for all the reasons we talked about before. Um, and that would kind of be, that would be my thought process. Those would be the things I'd be reaching for. Right. As far as the bicarb goes, uh, how often are we giving bicarb? We kind of know from ATLS or ACLS, uh, how often we're we giving epinephrine. Are you just going to keep handing me bicarb syringes until we run out? 
No, <laughs> probably, you know, uh, there's only one in the country. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I think there's three more in, uh, in trauma. So yeah, maybe I'll keep giving them to you until you run out. Um, it's a, it's a tricky question. So there's no right answer. There's no guidance from the literature on this. Um, I think a lot of it's just clinical judgment and gestalt. Um, I would definitely start with, you know, one to two amps. And then depending on how long the resuscitative effort goes on, um, you know, after five, 10 minutes, if you start to see some degree of clinical improvement with that first dose, um, I might be more inclined to give more. Uh, it just kind of depends on the trajectory of the case after that, you know, first, first round. All right. So as this case progresses, uh, the trauma surgeon does indeed open the left side of the chest and delivers the heart through the pericardium and uh, uh, starts doing uh, manual chest compression or manual compressions of the heart. And then the uh, ED attending looks at you forlorn, Dr. Gerald, and says, the trauma attending just asked me to deliver intracardiac epi, and I have never done that before. What do I do? So uh, before we get to uh, like why this might even be helpful, if it is at all, um, I think the thing is knowing how to do it. And so I think you might see different people do different things. Um, but what I do um, when I get asked of this is I just take your code syringe that you can take out of the code that we'll use for medical codes. Um, I get rid of the little top to it that would allow you to put it on a lower lock for an IV line. And instead of putting it on a line, I just put a 18 gauge IM needle on the end of it. Um, the heart is going to be a big muscle, right? So it's technically going to be an intramuscular injection. Um, so giving that 18 gauge needle sounds like a lot. I've only had one trauma provider ever say that this needle is too big and it was a young trauma resident. I've never had any of the attendings say anything about it. So I'm still going to give that big needle so they can get it as fast as possible. So we've got it all hooked up there. Uh, how much am I giving? Uh, so I think this is uh, debatable, but for ease of use, um, I'm just giving the whole one milligram. I think it's what most people are going to recommend. It'd be really hard to give more than that because that's all that's in that syringe. Um, but kind of like what we say with you know medical codes, we may not know the right dose of epi in general. And so I'd say here, we definitely don't know the right dose. And so the last thing I'll ask is they look at you and they go, so I just put this right into the heart and just push the whole thing. Yep. So you're going to go right into the left uh, ventricle typically. And some of the, some of the comments that I've had previously and the hesitation of doing it is, well, that's, that's 10 mils. That's a lot of volume. Shouldn't I use the really concentrated epi? And then, I mean, if you think about it, how much blood does that ventricle usually handle, right? It's liters per minute. So it can handle 10 mils over about five seconds. That is an excellent point. All right. So we give this patient uh, the intracardiac epi and you start to get an organized rhythm and the trauma surgeon sticks their finger in there and rushes that patient off to the OR and everybody stands around and looks at the chaos and then goes on to the next patient. So thank you very much uh, for helping with this amazing resuscitation that at least made it out of the emergency department. We all know that these patients still have a very high mortality if you have a traumatic cardiac arrest. However, we try and people surprise us sometimes. So excellent. Jay brush off. I go, Oh crap. We forgot to give cefazolin. He had an open fracture. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Ortho is going to be killing us on that. So, um, excellent points for both of you. Uh, uh, excellent way to kind of uh, look through some of this. Um, I'm going to give uh, the win this time uh, to Dr. Edwards uh, for his description. Eh, 
I'm going to give it to Dr. Edwards this time uh, for his description of, um, you know, the bicarb and not only going from that of just why we get bicarb or what it can help with, but even some of the uh, thinking of how much, how often, and then the cross clamp of the aorta was a totally different thing that I had never even considered. So Dr. Edwards, you get to win this time and I will give you uh, your uh, soapbox for the art of medicine. Well, I would love to share the soapbox. So if you guys have thoughts on things that you'd like to talk you about. You guys share you know, too much. It doesn't matter yeah. who wins. We're, we're, you know. We're a family. Yeah, yeah. We can work together really well. So uh, my, my soapbox is actually going to be pretty quick. So something I've been thinking a lot about is um, COVID vaccination rates and all of the misinformation that surrounds the COVID vaccine. I'm personally frustrated with, you know, uh, the number of people who are not getting vaccinated for ridiculous reasons. And I know it's got to be extremely hard for all of you guys on the front lines to deal with this as well. I just, I'm trying to personally cultivate some compassion around this and, and really the people that I know that aren't vaccinated or the people that I take care of that aren't vaccinated. I really try to be understanding and try to hear their concerns because a lot of times they've been fed misinformation from unreliable sources. And on rare occasion, you can find out what their hesitation is and talk them into it. And that's a life save, right? So we're all seeing the effects of these low vaccination rates. And I think if we can, you know, again, just cultivate that little bit of compassion, even though it's frustrating, even though it's like heart wrenching to see this, um, just, you know, keep trying and, uh, and hopefully we can get through this. Very timely, very well said. Um, And I think as most of us, uh, you know, feel that uh, compassion fatigue. There are plenty of people uh, that will still listen um, when they're scared. They can learn from others, and I think that, like any other poor decision that lands you in the emergency department, it's a chance for education. Hopefully, so very well said, and I really appreciate all that all three of you do uh, to help us to take good care of everyone that comes in. So. I, I think it's frustrating. It sounds like Chris is much more compassionate than I am. <laughs> <laughs> we know um, at least when <laughs> recorded <laughs> um no i i think where my frustration is is this isn't this is very basic science um you know and it's disappointing i think in some ways that we're in the situation that we're in right now and we are so lucky and so gifted to have liberty in this country especially with everything else going on in the world that I think we often forget about personal responsibility um, and how our choices can actually impact people and their lives. So um, that's kind of my soapbox. (laughs) You know, we have liberty, but don't forget about personal responsibility too. Dan, you want to turn this up beat a little bit? (laughs) You got a good soapbox you can jump on here, bud. You don't don't have to. I mean, I can, like, um, just to add, like, on the the COVID train, like, I know we're all fatigued, like, I'm frustrated, most of us are frustrated, but, I mean, if you look at it from the perspective of, if you can change one person's mind, like, you've made a big impact, so hopefully use that as, like, the driving force to continue talking to people. I mean, I've, I've had coworkers that were very hesitant, talk to me about the vaccine, and talk them through 
through like, Hey, like, here's why I did it. Or, Oh, here are your concerns. Like, let's talk about those, show them some of the evidence. And so there, there are some people that are willing to listen. Um, and so if you can identify and find those people, yeah, you could, you can make a big impact, not only for them, but you know, whoever they touch in their life. So, so I think as emergency providers, right, we're here to save people and this isn't fancy, this isn't flashy, but it is something that can make a very big trickle effect downstream. Well, thank you all for again for everything that you guys do. And we will talk with everyone next month.